Peter, or actually First Peter. Oh, it is Second Peter. Sorry, Second Peter, chapter two, begins like this. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their perniciousness ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for uh, your providence throughout history that we may learn from. And I just pray that you would bless this time as we again look at um, what you have done and the great truths which you have shown us through your word. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Council of Nicaea um, was what year? What did you say? 32580, okay. But what day did it start? <laughs> June 19th, actually, 32580, the day it started. Um, but I actually wanted to do a quick uh, recap on the doctrine of the Trinity because Mrs. Jorsky was the only one here paying attention last time. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, but it's really important because it is the foundation of why the Council of Nicaea took place. And so I just kind of quickly won't go into all the details that I did last time, but just quickly look at the doctrine of the Trinity and the implications for why we had the Council of Nicaea, which is really the most important council that ever took place in the history of the church. Um, so this basic doctrine of the Trinity right here is um, within the one being that is God, there is there it exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's built on these three foundations, that there is one God, we are monotheists, that there are three divine persons within the one God, and that the, the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. And I have this diagram to kind of help see how heresy begins. So if you look at the, the three points I just mentioned, monotheism, so there's one God, there are three persons within the Godhead, and they are co-equal and co-eternal. If you go away from monotheism, of course you end up in polytheism. So the points are the heresies. If you go away from the three distinct persons, you go into modalism. And if you remember, we talked about the Sabellianism. This was a heresy that was brought up in the early church in the East. And if you go away from the equality of three persons, you get into subordinationism. And this is what Origen, when we talk about Origen, he thought that Jesus was God, but he was just a little less God. Or you get into the different, completely denying the, trin denying the deity of Christ. And so it's kind of helpful to think about, because these are the heresies that end up coming up throughout history. Um, but... So, and there's tons and tons of passages we could go to, but real quickly to go through some of the things that um, are important is, of course, the Bible speaks there's, there's one God, right? And this is when we get to why Nicaea happened was because of this guy, Arius, 
and he's trying to make it work. If there's only one God, well, the Father and Son, he, he doesn't understand Trinitarian thought, right? He's Unitarian. So since there's only one God, well, Jesus can't be God. So that's what the way he thinks. But when you look through um, Scripture, and this is one thing I pointed out, which I thought is so cool, when you look at how God has communicated to us, and I'm quoting LSB here, but the, only, the main reason is because you have it in the poetic form, and then it goes back to prose form, and then it goes back to poetic. Why, why does it do that? Well, you know that the Bible was written mainly in Hebrew and Greek, right? Old Testament's Hebrew, New Testament Greek. Well, have you heard that some parts of it are written in Aramaic? Have you heard this before? This is all Hebrew, this is Aramaic, and this is Hebrew. What is Jeremiah doing here in, in verse 10? Well, he is speaking to the Babylonians, and he's condemning their, their heresies, that they're, they're false gods. He's condemning all their false gods. And when you get to verse 11, he says here, Thus you shall say to them, so he's actually speaking directly to the Babylonians in their own language. They spoke Aramaic. And specifically because it's so important to communicate this truth that there is only one God, right? Because they had all these other false gods. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make heaven and earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. So it's just, it's really cool to see how God was communicating exactly what he needed in their own language. And I think that's so neat that he quits speaking in, in Hebrew and goes to the Aramaic there. So again, the point is, there is one God. Anyone who says there are multiple gods is, is false. Mormonism is false because it believes in multiple gods. So as we move on, I painstakingly went through John chapter 1 because it, it is an incredible um, declaration of the deity of Christ. And what I talked about, uh, this is the Greek. Anybody, anybody read this? You should recognize in arcane ain ho logos. In the beginning was God, or it was the word, I'm sorry. And kai ho logos ain proston theon. And the word was with God. Um, kai theos ain ho logos. I'm sorry. And then God was. The word, and we talked about why the uh, you actually have to switch it around, and it's because in Greek, when you put the article, the article uh, indicates the subject, even though it's in the reverse order. And this is what Jehovah's Witness do. They say, well, it's not saying it's saying the God, not God, but in Greek, they, you, the order word order doesn't actually matter so much. It's uh, specifically where you put the article, so the. And what we also pointed out, which was so neat, and it's so, it's so cool that this is the language that God used to communicate to his people in the beginning. We just translate this one little bitty word here, ain, as was. But in the Greek, that one little bitty word carries with it the concept of preexistence, eternally existing. We just translate was, but ain actually carries with it the proclamation that Jesus has always existed. And it, it's so neat to just look at 
the way John is communicating, being very careful with the very words he used to communicate the deity of Christ through this passage. And in contrast to this verb, uh, egeneto, wherein it says, that has what the word ain doesn't, a beginning. Um, so he's saying that the word does not come into existence at the beginning, but it always existed. In the very verbs, tiny verbs and participles and pronouns, and the other really cool thing, I can't remember, I'm just going off the top of my head right now, but this word pros right here, um, it is the same uh, preposition. I'm trying to, I, I can't remember what they, I barely, I'm an, I are an engineer, right? I can't remember all these, what verbs and articles and stuff are. I, I learned more about it just studying Greek than I did ever in school. But anyway, that same preposition pros um, is used when it, uh, when Paul talks about Right now we see dimly, but later we will see face to face. So this is talking about the Logos and the Father being face to face in all eternity. It's the same preposition used there. Anyway, and so as you, as you go all the way through, um, and I'm skipping this because I did it last time, but when you finally get to, to verse 18, it's a bookend declaring the very first verse declares the deity of Christ to verse 18 when he bookends it with the deity of Christ. And I actually, and, and it comes down to this word monogenes theos, monogenes, which is normally translating as begotten, but it actually carries a lot more. Mono, one, genesis, you get genes from. It's actually saying the one unique God. And when you, when you look at, I put up various translations to try to get the full meaning of what is actually being communicated, and probably the CSB, which I've never read the CSB, but this is maybe the best. It says, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So you can very clearly see he's declaring Jesus is God when you get to that verse. And when you put those together, what is it? The Son of God? Why is he called the Son of God? Right. Uh huh. Uh huh. And one's called the Father. It is, well, it's, it's the means in which God chose to communicate the distinction between the two. Though, remember, they are eternal. They are. Uh, the language Nicaea used that the Son is eternally begotten, meaning he proceeds forth from the Father, but he is equal to the Father. And of course, you see, you know, how uh, they declare, they, they try to stone Jesus because he uses this kind of language, making himself equal. And then what's the verse when it says they went to stone him because he made himself equal with God when he said he was God's Son, right? Why God chose to use that language, I don't know, but that is the. Yeah, right. That that's that's a good point, Dan. I think that that makes sense because of the incarnation. Uh huh. I mean, 
Jesus the Son is in submission to God the Father, and then uh -huh. in many ways the, the Holy Spirit is in subjection to Jesus, and, and so you get that perspective that, yeah, uh, which right in so, many ways it, it is, confuses people like us. Yeah, it does. It does, <laughs> and that's why the Unitarianism can be so popular because it is confusing. But let me, let me just read some of this. I wasn't actually planning to go through all this again, but let me just read this to you. Um, the common argument against the deity of Christ, that the Father is the creator of all things, he creates through Jesus, therefore Jesus is not fully God. And then there's the other um, argument that the... Uh, against the deity of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is sent to testify of Jesus Christ and convict the world of sin. Since the Spirit is sent by the Father, Father the Spirit cannot truly be God. It's basically what you're saying, right? But both arguments share the same error. They ignore the above-cited difference, and I'm sorry, I didn't cite the difference, that difference in function does not indicate inferiority of nature. Does that make sense? Difference in function, because they do different things, does not indicate an inferiority of one of them, of their nature. So both of these arguments ignore that, uh, that truth, that difference in function does not indicate an inferiority of nature. That is, just because the Father, Son, and Spirit do different things does not mean that any one of them is inferior to the others in nature. And if you look at what's known as the eternal covenant of redemption, there's actually a heresy, and I, I didn't mention this last time, but there's a heresy called eternal functional subordination. And that is saying that Jesus has always been subordinate eternally to God. This is what Origen taught, basically. And that's actually a modern heresy that's been brought back up again in recent years. But the eternal covenant of redemption, it says that in, in eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit voluntarily and freely chose the roles they would take in bringing about the redemption of God's people. And this, I didn't read the Edwards quote that I did last time, which is so beautiful. He, he talks about this beautiful doctrine of the Trinity. But when you think about, this is for our salvation. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit chose to carry out different roles for the purpose of saving you, Gideon, saving you, Mr. Schlichter, Dan, all of it. He, 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 they carry out different roles for the purpose of redemption. And that is a beautiful thought to consider how God has carried this out. So in Trinity Pass, it says, the Father chose to be the fount and source of the entirety of the work. The Son chose to be the Redeemer and to enter into human flesh as one, subject, as one subject to the Father, and the Spirit chose to be the sanctifier of the church, the indwelling testifier of Jesus Christ. Each took different roles of necessity. They could not all take the same role and do the same things. Most arguments against the deity of Christ and the Trinity make a false assumption that for either the Son or the Spirit to be truly and fully God, they have to do the exact same things as the Father in the exact same way. No, they don't. That is, they assume, this is what Unitarians assume, they assume there cannot possibly be any differentiation 
in the persons of the Trinity without introducing an automatic inferiority on the part of those who do something different than the Father. They assume a Unitarian view of God as opposed to a Trinitarian view and assume that God could never do what he has revealed he has done in the work of redemption. That's what Unitarian, there's a guy named Dale Tuggy who's been out spewing Unitarian stuff lately. Um, those who deny the Trinity assume that Yahweh, remember Yahweh is, uh, if when you go back to here in the Old Testament, is always, well, this is LSB, so it has Yahweh, but it'll be translated Lord in all capital letters. Um, which, let me just, I didn't mention this last week. This is really awesome. The uh, Greek Septuagint is the Old Testament translation to Greek, right? Remember that? What word is translated, do they translate Yahweh as? Do you know what Greek word it is? It's Kyrios. Do you know what where Kyrios is used? Who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Lord is the word Kyrios. Do you get that? The word Yahweh in the Greek is translated Kyrios, which is translated Lord. Even most translations translate as Lord in the Old Testament, and that is applied to Jesus Christ. Jesus is Yahweh. He is God. Anyway, I thought that was really, really cool. I didn't mention that last time. But Those who deny the Trinity assume that Yahweh is unipersonal or Unitarian and then use the assumption to attack and deny all evidence to the contrary. We must keep this in mind that evaluating the passages that describe the Lord Jesus Christ as God, even while thou distinguishing him from the Father. And so the, the point is, as you read the New Testament, Jesus is spoken of as God, right? But he is distinct from the Father. And this is how you come to a Trinitarian view. Um, all right. Oh, and then just a few verses. And again, I'm using LSB here because it's so clear when it speaks of whose are the fathers and from whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is God overall. So again, there's multiple passages that very clearly articulate the deity of Christ. And this one I love is this 2 Peter 1, 1, verses 1, 11. And here is the Lord and Savior. So if you look at the Greek is exactly the same words except for Theo and Kyrio, which is God and Lord. So it, the best translation is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whereas King James adds our God and our Savior. But there's no reason to put that or there, that extra or. Because it's the same exact Greek as in verse 11 when it's translated our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first one should be our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, very clearly articulating the deity of Christ. And again, Titus here, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our glory and our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, Scripture is very clearly articulates the deity of Christ throughout it. And if he is God and he is not the Father, we, we come up with the Trinity. Um. And then to recap quickly on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit being the third person, and this we probably don't uh, 
we just kind of gloss over. But the neat thing is, and next time you're reading and you read about the Holy Spirit, recognize all the personal pronouns used. That the Holy Spirit is a person. And that's, that's the doctrine that's always... Um, uh, like Jehovah's Witness, they, when they talk about the Holy Spirit, they think of him as a force, right? He's not a person. But when you read the New Testament, even the Old Testament, you see the Holy Spirit is a person. He's given personhood. He, he's, personal pronouns are used, and, um, and he uses them when speaking of himself. And so, anyway, quite a few verses that you can check out. Uh, Jesus spoke of the Spirit as a person. The Spirit testifies, so he, he takes on action. He testifies. The Spirit guides um, the disciples. He speaks, and he discloses future events. He glorifies Christ. That's in all these verses here. The Spirit knows. He is omniscient. Is he he's knows. And let me just let's look at that verse. 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. Get that. 2, 10, 11 says, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of, of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Basically, he's saying the Spirit knows all things. Well, that means the Spirit is omniscient. He is, he is God, right? Anyway. Um, and finally, the Spirit is sovereign. You see that in Acts, over the, over the elders and things. You see that in Acts 20. So again, as you, as you read the New Testament and you come across, recognize the personhood of the Christ in the regular words. We tend to overlook that and not think about it as we read through. I was just looking up there. You spoke of the Spirit as a person. Uh-huh. Right. And actually, um, see if I have it in my notes from last time, but in, in the, the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness Bible, which they butcher, they just butcher, they, um, they add art articles. Are they taken away? Let's see, where was that? Um, Yeah. It, see, I had a I had a copy of it. One of the clearest indications of the personhood of the Spirit is he is his use of personal pronouns in reference to himself. That is, I prove my own personhood by speaking of myself as I and me. The Spirit likewise speaks of himself in this way. When the Spirit set aside Barnabas and and Saul, he did so personally. Let's see. Oh, maybe I didn't. Put it in here, but when it talks about um, the Holy Spirit in verses in Matthew and different the Gospels, the New World Translation just translates Holy Spirit. So He's given Holy Spirit to us, not the Holy Spirit, and it lowercases it. So it pur they purposely take out the article in those cases to take away the personhood of the of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so. That was quick. I'm sorry. Um, 
maybe you can go back and listen to the last time I taught it because I added a lot more details and a lot more quotes from various people. Um, but getting on to Nicaea. So um, Nicaea begins, um, it was called to order by, by Constantine. Constantine was the, the emperor of Rome, the first Christian. Some people, you know, there's debate whether he was truly a Christian or not, but he, he did bring peace to Christians, so he stopped, he ended persecution of Christians, and he is the one that calls for the Council of Nicaea. He, um, it, so he, he decides he's going to be a Christian, but what he finds out is quickly, because he thought this would, he's, he's a politician, right? And he's looking for peace and order to his kingdom, and so he declares Christianity is now legal, and then also he finds out there's this big division within Christianity now. And there, people are, are really split over this. And so he's like, well, I want my peace in my kingdom. So, all right, we're going to have a council and we're going to settle this once and for all. Um, so how did it come about? It's what's known as the Arian controversy. Um, like I mentioned, is the greatest theological controversy in the history of Christianity. It was centered on the most fundamental question who is Jesus Christ? Is he God in the flesh? Or is he just a created being like us? And this is why I wanted to go through the doctrine of the Trinity, because this is what the Council of Nicaea is rooted in. The church had inherited from Israel the passionate belief in, in one God. It now had to work out how that belief in one God related to the adorning worship it offered to Jesus of Nazareth in its faith, prayers, hymns, and sacraments. Because only God is to be worshipped, right? But the Christian church is worshipping Jesus Christ. And so as they're thinking these things through, you know, the question started rising. Okay, we believe in one God, there's a Father, Son. And people came to different conclusions. Of course, we talked about origin when he said, well, there's, you know, Jesus is just a lesser a lesser of deity than the Father. One interesting thing, anybody ever heard of Nicholas of Myra? Somebody heard of, heard of Saint Nicholas? <laughs> so do you all know the story of Saint Nicholas at the Council of Nicaea? Uh, Nicholas was, he was a very giving man. Of course, that's where the whole Santa Claus comes from and the whole teaching on him because he was very giving, right? He was at the Council of Nicaea. But you know what he does? That's going to make you have a whole different perspective on Santa Claus. He gets so angry at Arius, he walks over and slaps him across the face. He gets condemned and they're like, hey, you can't do that, you know. And he's, but the, the neat thing is he was so passionate about what they were teaching, about the deity of Christ. So passionate and so in love with who God was that he gets mad and slaps Arius. Anyway, just a side note. Santa Claus slept, Jesus. So, you know, if your kids aren't doing right at Christmas time, you remind them. Santa Claus slapped Darius, so watch your mouth. Anyway, sorry. So, um, Constantine had ended the persecution, but he found the church in the midst of this controversy. And it really began in Alexandria, Egypt, um, where this bishop, his name was Arius, um, he was a very popular preacher. He was a very slick talker. 
Um, apparently he was a good looking guy and he really was able to, to get a lot of people to follow him because he was just so eloquent. And, and even as the Nicaea went on, the, the council, they had to come up, we'll see in a minute, with a specific word to trap him because he had ways of getting around the accusations. He was just such a slick talker. And um, so we'll get to that in a minute. So Alexander, uh, Arius, um, he, he started teaching that the Father alone was God. The Logos, or the Son, Arius said, was a created being. So Jesus, he taught, was created. Formed out of nothing by the Father, before the universe was made, there was once a time when the Son had not existed. So according to Arius, the Son was the first and greatest of all that God had created. He was closer to God than all other, and the rest of creation... Uh, related to God through the Son, but only the Father was truly God, infinite and eternal and uncreated. By teaching this, Arius thought he was defending the fundamental truth that there is only one God. A belief in the deity of Christ, he felt, would mean that the Father and Son were two separate gods, which contradicted the many statements of the Bible about God's oneness. So he's trying to get around this. He just he's, has a Unitarian view. He doesn't get that God can be Trinitarian. Arius did not agree with Origen's idea that there could be degrees of divinity, with the Son being slightly less divine than the Father. And, um, oh, and uh, that's actually almost exactly what, um, well, his view is almost exactly what Jehovah's Witness believe. Jehovah's Witnesses are basically just resurrecting an ancient heresy that has been condemned, condemned many times over. But the bishop, the head bishop in, Al, in, Alexander, in Alexandria was named Alexander. And he strongly opposed Arius, but he also opposed Origen, the idea of de degrees of divinity. Alexander insisted that the Son was fully and truly God in, ab in an as absolute a sense as the Father was. The problem for Alexander was to show that this did not lead to a belief in two gods, as Arius maintained it did. So in 320, Alexander, he assembled um, all the Egyptian bishops, and they deposed Arius for, for heresy. So he's kicked out of Alexandria. And... Uh, but that doesn't stop him. He goes to the east and he starts uh, winning recruits. Um, and many found uh, in the east, they found this controversy very confusing um, because in some ways, the area seemed to be closer than Alexandria, Alexander to the eastern tradition, which came from origin. But um, Alexander was uh, challenging that tradition saying that the Son was equal with the Father in possessing full divine nature. So the Eastern Church was kind of, they were, they were perplexed. They didn't know what to do with these. They didn't know who to agree with, and they're just all confused. So that's when Constantine comes along, because it's, it's creating more and more division, and it's, it's kind of getting out of hand. So Constantine, he felt that it was his duty as the Christian emperor to restore unity to the empire's divided church. Therefore, 
He summoned the first ecumenical council of bishops from all over the Eastern Empire and a few from the West to settle the dispute. And the council met at Nicaea, the town in Northwest Asia Minor, in 325. There were about 300 bishops, as well as other um, deacons there. The most famous deacon, who some people thought he was a bishop, but he was, not. he was only a deacon at that point, was Athanasius. Anybody heard of Athanasius? Athanasius may have been one of the greatest theologians in, in the early church, and uh, I'll spend some time on him later. But uh, actually, I think my daughter has read the works of Athanasius. Have you not? She said it's hard to understand, though. <laughs> but he, he, he was, after the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius was bent on proclaiming what the uh, Council of Nicaea declares. Um, and he was the most uh, prolific um, expositor and, and proclaimer of the deity of Christ in the early church. Um, so what does the Council of Nicaea, what did they come to? It comes down, I'm running out of time here, between two, two words. So Arius is of a different substance, is heterousios. This is the word, you ever hear the word homoousios is the word that's always talked about when you talk about the Council of Nicaea. They throw Arius out. They said of a different substance, Jesus is, is not of a different substance. They throw his view out. And, he, and most of the council is spent on debating the two words, homoousios versus homoousios, of the same substance or of a similar substance. And the, the Eastern bishops were really um, struggled with the word homoousios. I think I've mentioned this before because the, the originist uh, used that word in saying Jesus was of less divinity. But... They, the Nicene, they didn't want to use the word similar substance because Jesus is God, not like God. He is God. And so they finally settled on that word, homoousios, of the same substance. So what does it say? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created. So that's where we lose a little bit in that word begotten. That's the word uh, monogenes again, which in its essence doesn't necessarily mean to be born. It's used that way, but it really means the one unique one, the unique God begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. The same essence is that word homoousios. Through whom, that is Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, who for, uh, for us human beings and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, was made man, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. So that's the main uh, creed, the Nicene Creed. Um, let's see, did I have another slide? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, the one thing that often is overlooked, and we'll end it, is that they not only did they have the statement of what we believe, they also had these anathemas. 
And the anathemas condemned Arius as a heretic and said, he is not even a Christian. So basically said, you are not going to heaven if you believe this. Um, and so, yeah, that's, it meant, let me just read this. The council then added a series of anathemas to the creed. The Greek word anathema means given over. To pronounce an anathema on someone or to anathematize him meant to declare him to be outside the church. It was a stronger act even than excommunicating someone. The church could not discipline, the church could discipline a disobedient Christian by banning him from Holy Communion for a time, but if it anathematized someone, it meant declaring him not to be a Christian at all. The Council of Nicaea then pronounced the following anathemas against Arius. It says, as for those who say there was a time when he, the Logos, was not, and he was not, and he was not before he was created, and he was created out of nothing, or out of another essence or thing, and the Son of God is created, or changeable, or can alter the holy Catholic and apostolic church anathematize the anathematizes those who say such things. I can barely spit those words out. So basically, declared Arius as an unbeliever because he did not believe who in the deity of Christ. And that's what we do today. Those who do not believe in the deity of Christ are not genuine believers because only God could pay for our sins. All right? All right. It's all over the place this morning, but uh, let's pray. The Heavenly Father, I just thank you um, for dying for our sins, Lord. I pray that you would help us to know your word, know it well, and know you and who you are and what you have done for us. May you be glorified by all we say and do today as we worship you in spirit and in truth, for you are worthy. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.